You guys can grab a seat. Before we get started, I want to just pray for the 70 women that are up north coming down pretty soon from the women's retreat, hence the reason why we look a little bit smaller and maybe too male-driven today. Um, but uh, let's just pray for them because there's something that's always profound and awesome that happens in this time away, and I want to make sure that um, they're received well and prayed for. So join me in praying. God, thank you for, just thank you for the ability for these women to go up north to spend this time in McCall. Um, God, 70 women pressing into each other and you is always a good thing. And so I just praise you for Debbie and the prep she had through the teaching. I just pray that that went well. Pray that your spirit moved mightily through her and that she was able to communicate all that um, she really felt like the Lord had pressed on her to communicate, God, for the, the time, the small group time and the, the activity time and the, the fun time and the relaxing time. God, I just pray that it was, it was powerful. I pray that every single woman comes back empowered and excited by your spirit to do mighty works for your kingdom. God, I pray that, that Rev would not be the same because of these women being so in love and on fire for you. God, I pray that they um, would assimilate well back into life, whether it's, it's moms or wives or school or work, whatever they left behind. And I pray that this wouldn't just be something they look back on and, man, it was nice to, to be so close to you then and, and just fall away during this time, but instead that this would just be a stepping stone that propels them further and deeper and in love with you. So we thank you for the ability to do this. We thank you for the many people that stepped up today to help fill the holes as a church. We are just uh, missing an incredible, an incredible group of people that make so much of what you're doing here so much more fun and joyful. So God, we thank you for these women. We thank you for their time. We thank you that they could do this, and we thank you that so many were able to go. We pray that you get every single one of them home safely. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Thank you. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, slip your hands up. The ushers will grab one for you. You are welcome to look on your electronic device if you'd like as well. We've been in this long chapter 11. We're actually going to finish the book of Hebrews, it looks like, in December, so that's exciting. But we've been in chapter 11 for quite some time, and the author made it a point to kind of push into all of these Old Testament kind of heroes. And again, knowing his audience, knowing who he was speaking to, knowing who he was talking to, all the Jewish people there understood and knew all of the history that included all of these individuals that he was talking about over these last few weeks that we've been covering. He, he was speaking about Abraham and every single Jewish person knew the life and the story of Abraham. They weren't like, wait, I've never heard that before. It was a very common theme. Every single person he hit was doing that. And so now we get to find out as we end chapter 11 and jump into chapter 12, why does he do that? Why, why does he stop after this long progression about who Jesus is and how greater he is than anyone else and then talk about what it means for us to persevere at the end and, and, and how Jesus being the high priest is all that really matters to us. And then he just kind of seems to pause and hit this long section of all of these by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, about people, which he had just, and some of which he'd already established that Jesus was greater than these people. Why does he do that? And I think in a lot of ways he steps in here because he recognizes for all of us as we get very, very kind of simplistic in what faith is, even talking about last week about how Jesus does the miraculous and how God still will work through providential ways and, and God is still in and, and working through um, many people. I think a lot of us struggle to see us is able to follow through with the way things are. And so I think he takes this opportunity and points out all of these individuals that by faith they did this, by faith they did this, so that you and I or the, or the listeners in that day can go, this is possible, this is something I can do. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 11, verse 39. This is where we finished last week. And then we'll finish in 12, chapter 2, or chapter 12, verse 2. And all these, now pause for a second, all these is not the last few he's talked about, but the entirety of chapter 11. 
Okay, this is, this is a blanket statement. And all of these, every single person, Abraham, Moses, Rahab, all of the individuals, the prophets, everyone that I've spoken about here, they, though commended through their faith, now they were commended through their faith, they were commended by God. God witnesses their faith. He's, he's the witness of their faith. They were commended by faith, did not receive what was promised. Now that seems a little hard because some of them, you go, wait a second, like, they did get to the promised land, and they did, Rahab was freed from the Israelites coming in. And so yes, there are some of them that received smaller promises, but that's not the promise he's talking about. He says, since God had provided something better for us. Now he goes from them to us. For us. That apart from us, they, them, should not be made perfect. And so what is he doing here? It's a, we have to just kind of un, unwrap this just a little bit. He's, he's basically saying, that the author's saying, that these great heroes of faith were commended by God, which he means that God himself bore witness to their faithfulness. So the reason why they're deemed faithful is not because of all the Jewish people that followed up and said Abraham was the father of faith, but because God deems them faithful. And the second thing is he's saying is their faith in God has been vindicated since God has broken into the world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So he's saying their faith was made perfect in the coming of Jesus Christ, which is why with us it's being perfected. And so we now, on the tail end of that, see Jesus Christ. Our faith can be perfected because Jesus has already come. And that's what he's working in. And so he's saying, look, these individuals, they died. They, they served. They persevered to the end, like chapter 10 said. It's, it's about persevering to the end. They had done that very thing without ever receiving the promise. We now live on the other side of the promise that Jesus Christ has come. We can be clothed in righteousness because of what he has done. We're anchored in the throne room of God. Everything that the author has been saying through Hebrews, through Jesus Christ being our high priest, like this is a, a profound promise. And so then he goes on saying, look, these individuals, as amazing as they were, their faith was perfected after Christ came. This is when it's perfected. And then he goes, therefore, right, therefore. So because of that truth, because of that very thing, because of what all these heroes of faith did, by faith, by faith, by faith, therefore, Therefore, since verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author has done this over and over and over again through the book of Hebrews where he's changed who is the tense he's talking to. He said you, he said them, he said us, he said we. Here he switches back to the us, we. It's almost like he's, he sits down here and he leans in. It's like, now, therefore, listen, listen, listen. Because, I, again, a lot of those individuals would have heard all of these things about the Old Testament he, heroes, and they were stories that they had heard over and over and over again. And so he's like, now, now, pay attention, pay attention. Therefore, let us, and he, he ties himself in. He does a very pastorly thing here, very shepherd thing. He, let, let us, and so he's trying to pull them out. He's drawing them out. Let us run this race with endurance. And so I um, had the opportunity many years ago, I decided I wanted to volunteer. I used to like to run. I don't like to run anymore. But I had the opportunity to, to go and volunteer at an Ironman in Coeur d'Alene. If you've ever seen one of those things, it's, it's incredible. There's like 1,500 to 2,000 people that, that compete in this Ironman. And the one at Coeur d'Alene had like 20,000 people that were there to volunteer or, or watch this thing. And so what they do is they, they, in the Ironman, if you're familiar with it, I, I'm not super familiar with it because it's been a long time, but I think it's like 16 hours and 50 minutes is what you have to finish the entire thing, the three legs, the swim, the bike, and the run. 
okay? But each one, you have to finish a little bit before and a lot of time. So I think it's like two hours, you have to finish the swim, and then you have so much time, so it all adds up to basically being midnight when you have to be done. You have to be done by midnight. Now, if you don't make it out of the first break, out of the swim within the allotted time, you're disqualified and you can't go on. And so you have to make it through each one of those things. And at each spot, I remember as I was volunteering, I was doing something that I think I was doing what I was supposed to be doing, but they also let us watch, so I wasn't slacking. So then we all, all the volunteers would make their way to the beach as they were doing the swim right before the time was allotted, when there was like five minutes left. And we'd all be on the beach like screaming, come on, let's go. And you're watching people just swimming as hard as they possibly can. And there were individuals that inevitably made it by like crawling onto the beach, like literally crawling on, making it, and some that just didn't make it. And then they had to get up, kind of get themselves dried off, hop on a bicycle and start heading off for a bunch of miles there. And they did this over and over and over again. And the spot that was most amazing, most incredible, was the end of the race. After the the swim has been done, the bike has been done, and they're on the run, the, the full marathon run, right? And it was the last leg, the last about half mile was this kind of this long sweeping swoop where you could kind of, if you were standing here, you could see everyone kind of coming this way. And you had to finish by midnight. And so if you finished by 12.01, you did the whole race, well done, but you didn't, you didn't finish. And so that's the way it was. And so there were thousands of people on either side of the street, just screaming, come on, you got this, and like just cheering these people on. I'm telling you, like, I was like emotionally invested in these people that I had no idea who they were, because I was like, you can make it, you know, bawling for the people that didn't make it, you were so close, you know, like, probably doesn't shock any of you, I cry all the time, right, but either way, um, and so, so it's like this incredible thing where you're like, I want to see them win, and a lot of people have that picture in mind when you think about this section with the cloud of witnesses. You think about running this race and Abraham's up there going, come on, Bren, you got this, you got this. And you see this, this kind of this cheering on. I don't really think that that's actually what this text is doing here. Now, I will say this, there's a very good chance that they are cheering us on or, or, or rooting us on, but there's nowhere in scripture that really points that out. The witnessing that we have here is actually more of us seeing them and their faith. And so, so what he's saying is this cloud of witnesses, we can look and we can say, David did it. I mean, David, David had this whole thing with Bathsheba and all these other things, but yet David ended, and he's, he's written right now about by faith, by faith, by faith, the man after God's own heart. Like David did it, it's a way for us to look at the witness of his faith that God has said he's the witness of, deeming them faithful. He's the one that's commended them as faithful. And we can look at them as the winners. We can look at them as the ones that have finished the race, that have persevered to the end. So we can see their faith and how they lived, and it should encourage us to say, hey, it can happen. It can be done. Rahab did it. We can do it. Abraham did it. We can do it. Moses did it. We can do it. Joseph did it. We can do it. And so this is meant to be a cloud of witnesses, ultimately, that we can look to and see that it's possible for us to persevere to the end. Which is important, and the reason why I believe that that's the context of this is, again, the Hebrews, um, the, the Hebrews was written at a time to Jews right before persecution really took off. It's like 66, 68 AD. This is before 70 AD where everything comes and gets destroyed. But they've started to experience persecution from Jews that are, that are saying, why aren't you following the high priest and the, and the sacrificial system in Jerusalem? Why are you claiming Jesus Christ has done away with that? Which is why he spends the first 10 chapters establishing Jesus as better than everything and the high priest. And, and, and this, is, this is where that, so starting to experience persecution and struggles. And before he even went into the by faith chapter, 10 ends in verse 36, telling us specifically to endure to the end, to make it, to persevere. Don't, don't lose hope. Don't give up. It's about staying to the end. It's, 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 it's always been about the end. Stay faithful, stay faithful, stay faithful. And then he goes on and says, and look at what 
these brothers and sisters did. They were faithful. By faith, they did this. By faith, they did this. By faith, they did this. And then he comes in and says, now us. Therefore, us. Let us run this race with endurance. Now, that says two things to us. First off, okay, that you're on a race. You're running whether you like it or not. Some of you are like, man, I'm so tired of following the Lord. Well, it's because you're running. It's because it's a race. But he says, let us run this race with endurance. Now, if you've ever run before, you know, ever at all, if you said, I'm going to set out to run, and then you go, okay, I'm getting ready, and you gear up for a 400-meter dash, and you're like all ready to go, and you show up to the race, and you get ready to, to do your one lap around the track, and you look to the person to the right and the person left, and they got like little fanny pack things on with water bottles and everything. Like, man, that is just weird. Like, why would you run with that? That's going to slow you down, and you set yourself up in the tracks to get a good launch, and they don't have them at all. You're feeling a little like, man, I'm going to just destroy these people. And you set out to run, and you make it that 400 meter, and you, you woohoo, I did it. And then they just keep going. And you realize it wasn't a 400 meter, it was a 1600 meter. I think a lot of us struggle with that with the Lord. We don't count the cost like the Apostle Paul tells us to do. Like Jesus mentions, count the cost. What, is it, what does it mean for us to follow him? What does it mean for us to live a life of faithfulness to the Lord? It's to persevere to the end. It's to run with endurance. You don't need endurance for a 100 meter sprint. You need to be in shape and strong, and you need to be fast, that's great, but you don't need the endurance that you need to run the long race. Look, the Apostle Paul at the end of his life in Timothy says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race, right? Like, he didn't, he didn't say, oh man, I walked the joyful life. I strolled and skipped through everything, and then I just finished. He talks about this daily battle, this fighting, this running, this exhaustion, this difficulty. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus says my, my yoke is, and burden are light and easy, right? Like he, he proclaims us a way for us to walk where there's this, this peace and joy, but he never ever says that our circumstances or our difficulties will go away. And so there's this picture, this envision that we have to count the cost to follow the Lord, to live a life of faithfulness, is to persevere to the end. It doesn't matter how you start. It doesn't matter how you start. In fact, Jesus gives us a very scary parable about the weeds and the things that come. He says, look, the weeds are the ones that shoot up super fast, but then when the sun comes out, they're destroyed. Right? You can't just start fast. You have to run with endurance. And so this tells us that, that walking with the Lord, that living this life with the Lord is going to take endurance. It's going to take tiring, hiking, drudging movement. It's not something that's just going to be super easy all the time. It's going to be difficult. And he says, run with endurance. Count the cost. Before you ever submit yourself to the Lord, run with endurance. Hebrews has talked about that for a very long time. I don't want you to see this whole running thing all the way through because there are people that will start a race that don't ever finish it. That isn't true of followers of Christ. At least we don't see that in Hebrews 6, 2, or 3. We see out of this very same book, or in chapter 10 as well, that ultimately anyone that once you are following the Lord, you are in the Lord's care. There is no one that can take you from that. There are those that will look like they're a part of it, but will never come through. First John talked about that too. They were never of us. Jesus talks about many will come and say that they, they, Lord, Lord, did I not do this in your name? He says, away from me, I never knew you. So there will be plenty of people that will start the race next to you that look like they're ready for the race, that look like they're part of this race, but really never fully submitted themselves to Jesus Christ. But if you start the race, if you submit your life to Jesus Christ, you are going to finish this race. It takes perseverance and endurance. And let me tell you why I think you're going to finish this race. First off, he talks about how we can help ourselves finish this race, right? He goes on and says, he says, let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles us. Now he does weight and sin, and there's a, there's a lot of disagreement in the scholars about what this is, if it's one brought together kind of by a, a clause, or if it's two different statements, or, or either way. I think 
any of that could be true, but I think one of the things, the reason why he says two different things is that be, most of the time, if you're thinking about a race, people would train with weights on them. Like even before CrossFit was a thing, guys, okay? People would train with weights on them and they would run with extra weight on them so that when the, when the race came, even back at the very beginning of the Olympics, everything, they would train with extra weight. When the race came, they would take off the weight so they would be lighter and they could feel like they'd go further or stronger and they were in place. And so he's talking about these things that, that aren't necessarily bad. They're just not wise to run with. It'd be like going, I'm going on a great run today and putting on your tight, skinny, awesome hipster jeans and a big pair of like boots that have steel toes in them and, and wearing, a, wearing your big down coat on a 100 degree day. And like, I can't wait to run a few miles today. Like that would be foolishness. Some of you are like, I'll totally do that. That's just making you more of a hipster, okay? If you're like, I can do that, okay? But either way, that would be foolishness. And that's what he's talking about. There's a way we can run this race where two things that are told us, we can actually lay them down. We can lay these things that weight us down. Now, I want to talk about those things because I think a lot of times it's really easy to get to sins, and we'll talk about that in a second. Weights are things that distract us that aren't bad. Weights are things that get in the way of our life that aren't, that, that aren't bad. They get in the way of us running the race with endurance. Let me, let me use an example. Um, school. A bunch of you students, a bunch of college students are in school. School's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But when you use school as an excuse to detract yourself from the race for the Lord, it's become an issue. Marriage. Marriage is not a bad thing. Marriage is a gift from God. In fact, it's the one area that we can hopefully see a beautiful picture, a profound picture of Christ and the church on earth through marriage. But when your life becomes about marriage and not the Lord, we got a problem. It's a weight. Not inherently bad things. Your job isn't a bad thing. It's not bad to want to do well and to provide for your kids. But when it, when it takes precedence over running the race, making disciples, being light and salt in this dark world, when it takes place of the very commands that the Lord has put in place for those of us that follow, the, follow him to live by, then they become something that entangles us, that entraps us. And you and I both know, you and I both know that we can only spend so much energy and time pursuing our careers before sooner or later our careers become the thing we pursue the most. We can only spend so much time pursuing an extra amount of savings before the money is what really brings our security. You can only spend so much time pursuing these things before these things that aren't inherently sinful in themselves become sinful because they become idols. They become false gods. And let me just say this really quickly. A lot of people do this with kids. A lot of people use kids as an example of, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll start doing more with the Lord once my kids are at this age, as, as if that's going to really work out. My favorite one is I, work, I get to meet with a lot of young couples that are getting married. Oh, yeah, we'll really figure out what we're going to do as a, as a couple in, in church and in, in our marriage once we're married, like as if that really gets easier, Right? And we use these things, that we, we, these, these weights, these things that, that are just, just moments away from entrapping us. They're just moments. They're all good things, but they can become an entrapment very quickly. And he says something profound. He says, you have a choice here. Lay them down. Let it go. Let your, your ferocious appetite for more subside so that you can spend time with the Lord. Let your desire to, to be the best at this hobby to die so that you can actually love your wife like Christ loves the church. Let these things Lay these things down so that you can run the race with endurance. Too many of us think, specifically guys, we think, well, I can sprint for the next month and a half so that I can do this next month and a half without doing anything. That is not running the race with endurance. It is a continual stepping, a continual walking with the Lord. And he says, run it with, with endurance. Lay down every weight. So that's the weights. And then he goes on and says sin. The author doesn't seem to have a specific sin in mind, but rather understands that sin is a hindering, pro it's, it's something that can hinder progress in faith. He sees that sin will ultimately hinder progress in faith. Now, this should, this should uh, uh, bring us keenly aware of a couple things. One, we just went through a number of Old Testament heroes that had plenty of sinfulness in their life that we have recorded for us in the scriptures. 
but yet they still ended their life. They still persevered by faith. So there is a way for us to persevere by faith, even with our own sinfulness. And we'll talk about that in a second. But the second thing that should bring us aware to is that we, again, have a choice to make here. We have a choice to say, am I going to lay this sinfulness down? Am I going to give this sinfulness up? Am I going to let this, let this go so that the Lord can do what he wants to do in me with faith? So many people pray for more faith, but continue to walk in blatant disobedience and sinfulness. I mean, let me look, we think about this all the time. We do this all the time. I can't tell you how many times I talk to people, like, man, I just, want, I just want the faith to believe that God can do this very thing, but yet I'm not willing to give up this lust that I give myself to every single night. I just want the faith that God can heal my marriage, but yet I don't see any sinfulness in my anger or my temper. I just, I just wish, I wish that God would show me his faithfulness and give me more faith in this, but we've refused to look past our, our, our pride, and we, we just hide it as super confident. Sin is, is going to entrap you. Sin is, is going to slow you down. It's going to cause you to wrestle with faith. We talked about last week about both recognizing that faith will happen. Faith is required when God sustains us through persecution, and faith is required when God does miraculous things for us, right? Faith, it takes faith for both of those. If you are wallowing in shame and, and, and guilt because of a sinfulness that you refuse to give up because you're afraid of the consequences, I promise you you're going to have a faith crisis over and over and over again because you know what the enemy's going to do? He's going to see every single, every single great thing you do. When you give money, when you serve, when you, when, you're polite, when you help some homeless person, he's going to point out the fact that, yeah, you're doing that because you're hiding from this. You're doing that because you're hiding from this. And he's going to keep shaming you and footholding you. This is the entrapment. This is what keeps us from running the race. It grabs us in snares. It grabs our feet, and we can't move. We can't run the race. And so many people are running with a dragging a limb because they refuse to lay down the sin that so easily entangles them. And here's, here's the, the best part of the scripture is that it's not really, that's, that's what we do. We get to lay this down. But really, at the end of the day, this is a race that's set before us. You ever think about that? He says, this is run the race that's set before us. No one ever goes to an Ironman and says, okay, I love the route you coursed here, but I really want to do something different. So I'm going to go this way. I think this is better. I think I can do better this way. So I'm just going to go ahead and do this way. You'd be disqualified. Well, God is sovereign, and he knows the path that is before you. He knows the steps that are going to be made. And some of you, that's like, I don't know. This should bring immense peace to you. Why? Because of the very promise he says after this. First off, this is a race that's set before us. This is something that he has for us to run. And many of us, we look at that and we go, that is too hard, God. I don't want that. And we start looking for an offshoot. We start looking for an exit. Can I, can I take this way instead? That looks too difficult. As we start looking forward, we go, man, I don't, I know, like, I get it. I get it, Rahab and David, David this is, but this is different. They didn't have the internet like I did, like I do. They didn't have to deal with the education system the way I do. Like, we, we start excusing. We, we get fixated on the race that's set before us as if we can actually change directions of it. The reason why that race being set before us is, brings profound peace and joy to me is because of the very next thing he tells us to do. How, how do we accomplish this race? What do we fix our eyes on? Church, what do we fix our eyes on? Jesus, who is what? The author, the founder, the beginning of our faith, and the completer, the perfecter, the come to full, full fruition of our faith. This is how we run this race with endurance. We fix our eyes not on the course that's set before us. We fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, who's at the end of our race and going to see us through the entire thing. Guys, this should bring so much peace to you. Yeah, yes, there's a step. He, he commands of us. He, he tells us. He, he gives us a way to run with freedom. 
lay down the sinfulness, lay down the weights, get rid of those things. But all you have to do to finish this race, all you have to do to finish this race is three simple things. One, trust the Lord and his promises. And the second thing is, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. The third thing is, is anything that Jesus Christ says he does or does for us, do that by his strength. And that's how you persevere to the end. That's how your faith is perfected. Your faith is perfected by seeing Jesus Christ's life, his, his perfect life, his sinless life that was sacrificed for us. He gave us a way to live. He said, abide, remain in me, and I remain in my Father. Your joy will be complete. Stay with me. Obey my commands. Love me the way that I love you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And so many of us, the reason why you're struggling with faith, the reason why you're wrestling with faith, the reason why I wrestle with faith is because we take our eyes off of Jesus. Another perfect example of that is Peter walking on water. There's lots of other things we can talk about that, right? What is Peter, what happens to Peter while he's walking on water? He sees the wind. No one sees wind. You see the effects of wind. What does it mean he took his eyes off of Jesus and he begins to sink? That is true of every single one of us. The reason why your neck deep right now is because your eyes are not fixated on Jesus. They're fixated on the trail in front of you. You go, this is too hard. I can't do this. Or this is too good. And I'm just so excited. We just, we just get so narrowly focused. We forget that we are supposed to be fixing our gaze on Jesus Christ. That, I mean, that it means it's not, to, it's not to just look. It's to stare longingly to be in that presence with that person. It's to, it's, to, it's to literally fix everything, that nothing, everything else goes away. It's tunnel vision. All you see is Jesus Christ. That's all you see. Our struggle is that we get fixated on the person in front of us. Jesus, I would have more faith if my wife would stop doing X, Y, or Z. You stopped looking at Jesus and you started looking at your wife. Jesus, I'd have more faith if you just figure out these financial things. I'm being this way. And you stopped looking at Jesus and you saw the money. You've got to look at Jesus. You've got to fix your gaze on, at Jesus and him alone. You want answers for your life? You want to understand what your purpose is or how you're supposed to move? Fix your gaze on him. Why? Because the most profound promise. He promises to complete you. He promises to finish you. So this is one of those things where you and I can go, oh, praise God, it's not determined by me. I don't, I don't have to do this on my own. It's him that's going to finish the work. It's him that anchors me to the throne room of God. It's him that deems me righteous by his blood. It's him that does all these things. I don't have to do it. It's him. And so, church, we have, we have a choice. Are we going to lay down the things that get in the way of him doing the work that he's going to do? Are we going to submit ourselves to the very person that we say we believe in? We sing about it. We give money to it. We, we proclaim it. We pray to him. Like, are we going to give ourselves this way? Are we going to fully give ourselves to run this race with endurance? To persevere to the end? Because that is, that is all that matters. That is all that matters. And here's the thing. As, as long and as difficult and as painful and as, as horrible as that journey may seem, it's still a vapor in comparison to eternity. It's still a short amount of time in comparison to eternity. Our faith crises are because we stopped looking at Jesus, who, by the way, endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. That's a beautiful statement. He says he despises shame. You know what's incredible about that whole section? I don't have time to go into all of it, but what's incredible about that whole section is that the most shameful thing that could have happened to anyone was to be crucified on a cross in Jesus' day. That was the most humiliating, I mean horrible, horrible thing that could happen. And it literally says here that Jesus Christ shamed the shame. Jesus Christ despised the cross. He despised the cross. So he took the shame that was meant for him and he despised it. Why? Because the joy that was set before him, the joy that he saw in completing the work that he began in everyone else. 
because of the joy that he saw for every other opportunity for every other individual to come to know God through the blood of his sacrifice. Jesus endured the cross. He saw the joy in that. He saw the joy that it took to go through that excruciatingly horrible and painful thing so that you and I could sit today and persevere to the end. We have no hope of persevering to the end without him despising the shame, enduring the cross. Guys, this is an amazing promise for us. This is one of the most incredible things we can do, which is give ourselves entirely to Christ. Fix our gaze on him. So what's getting in the way? What are you running with? What, what thing is carrying? What's this little, like, picture chain around your ankle with a ball, and you're just dragging it around. You're trying to run your race. What, what needs to be let go of? What needs to be laid aside? And here's, here's the most profound and beautiful thing. Those things in Christ have no power over you. Let me, let me say that again a different way. Your sinfulness, your struggles, your battles, your issues to do away with the sins and the weight have zero power over you if you are in Christ Jesus. You have all the power in you through Jesus Christ and his spirit to defeat anything, anything. So stop believing the lie that you can't. Stop allowing the enemy to shame you into believing that there's just, it's just too late. It doesn't matter. The consequences are just too great. You have the ability to see through it. We're going to take communion as a church. And communion is a beautiful thing. It's something that Jesus began, kind of institutes on the Passover right before he, he goes to the cross with his disciples. And he tells them, he says, look, I will partake of this meal with you, but I won't do it again until I'm in glory with the kingdom of people. So he is, he is awaiting to do communion with us again. He's celebrating the scriptures. He tells us that he's actually literally up there preparing a place for each and every one of us that are his children. He's excited. He's preparing. He's like, I can't wait to feast with you again. But he says, until that time, do this in remembrance of me. And he holds up bread and juice. For us, we have gluten-free bread because that's pretty much what everyone here needs. And then we have grape juice as well. And these are profound and beautiful symbols for those that submit their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is a beautiful opportunity because he says this. He says, do this in remembrance of me. That word is where we get amnesia. So he's saying, don't forget what I've done. When you and I take our eyes off of Jesus, it's because we forgot what he's done for us. When we take our eyes and fix them on the sinfulness, the trail, or the, the race that's set before us, which the enemy loves to do, he loves to get us fixated on that, we've taken our eyes off of Jesus, we forget what he's done for us. The, the bread symbolizes his body that was broken for us. The, the whipping, the lashing, the, the standing on the cross, or the, the being hanging on the cross and having to push himself up and get splinters in his back just so he can take a breath in. Like all of that brokenness, the crown of thorns, everything that happened to Jesus, when you take the bread, you agree that that had to happen. You say, this, is, this happened. You did that, Jesus, for me. And this had to happen. There was no other way. And when you drink of the juice, it symbolizes his blood, which is where we see our righteousness come from, the spilling of Jesus' blood. Jesus drinks the cup of wrath from God in our place so that we can drink his blood to be deemed righteous. And so we proclaim his righteousness. We pr proclaim his goodness. We proclaim our salvation in taking of the, of the elements at the table. We say that we did this because ultimately he, we do this because ultimately he did it for us. And we, we fix our eyes on him in it. We stay fully fixated on him in it, nothing else. But there's another pro profound promise, and this is where you and I usually get in trouble. We're pretty good about thinking sometimes about what Jesus did for us in the past, but we forget about his promises to what he's going to do in and through us for the future. And when we take of the communion, when we take of the elements on the table, we say, we proclaim that Jesus is coming again. And until that day, he is perfecting me to look more like him. 
Until that day, I'm going to submit myself to whatever process may it take to refine in me, to do away with the sinfulness that my flesh still desires, so that when he comes again, I no longer have to battle this flesh. I no longer have to fight the good fight. Instead, I can stand in his glory and worship him with all my brothers and sisters. That's what communion is. That's what we do. And so the band's going to come up, and we're going we're gonna to worship a few different ways. We're going to worship in singing. We're going to worship through communion. I would invite you guys to go back to the table at any moment to grab bread, to grab the juice, and to take that with your gospel community, to take that with your family, to take that with anyone that came. You're welcome to do that whenever you feel ready to do so. And then at the end of that, we just continue to worship here. Here's the beautiful reason why I'm excited about doing communion. is It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moment just to pause in our weeks on today to just pause to remember what he's done for us. And some of you right now that are wallowing in shame and guilt, you're, you're, you're wrestling with that. Those of you, those of you that, that profess to know Jesus, you're like, man, I can't, I can't shake this shame or this guilt. I can't seem to do it. You need to approach that table and recognize that that's what the table symbolizes, is that you don't have to walk in shame. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we take, uh, when we take of communion, we're proclaiming that I no longer have to feel the guilt or shame of my sinfulness because it's been paid for incomplete by Jesus Christ. And some of you, when you go back there to do this, I think a lot of us, you recognize, even as I've brought up sins or weights, and you recognize um, that there is a sin in your life. In fact, it came front and center when I said it. It's the same thing that kind of comes front and center every time you feel this opportunity or the, feel a little bit of guilt or shame, which let me just tell you right now, that guilt or shame, the, the Holy Spirit can be convicting you, but if you're feeling shame, it's from the enemy. God does not shame his children. But that conviction, if you're feeling convicted to confess something, but you keep holding on to because you're afraid of the consequences, you're trying to control how it comes out, that's a, this is a really, really good time to not take of the table until you confess and repent of that. Let me, let me say this really clearly. I said confess and repent because I think a lot of us are really good at confessing. It's almost become the cool thing to say, like, here's my sins. Repentance is actually turning from it. Repentance is how you run the race with endurance because you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. You turn to him in your life. And so maybe you need to confess with a family member here. You want to pray with someone or a gospel community leader or someone that's around you. Just turn to them and say, hey, I need to confess this. I need you to pray for me. I want to repent of this and do that. Some of you, you need to make a phone call because you have outright hatred towards another brother and sister in Christ. And the scripture literally says you can't say you love God and hate your brother. And so some of you need to confess that. You need to make a call right now. You need to have a conversation. You need to repent of this so that you can take of this. And some of you, you're here today and you're like, man, I just don't know if I believe in Jesus. I don't know if you, like what he means. My, my hope and my prayer is that you'd recognize that you're not here by accident. In fact, I, I know, I know it's parents week for, for BSU. You're not here because of that. You're here because he wants to do something in you. And so I'd encourage you and challenge you to submit your life to the Lord, the only one that can bring peace, freedom from the, the chains and the shame that we feel and carry for our life and give us the ability to actually run the race with endurance. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for allowing us to be on this journey with you. God, please forgive us for the ways that we've taken our eyes off of you. Please forgive us for the ways that we get distracted by so many other things, even the good things in our life. God, would you help us to be laser-focused? People that just are so fixated on you that nothing can distract us. That everything we do, whether it's our marriage or our parenting or schoolwork or work or, or anything that we do, every single thing that we do, God, would we just do it fixated on you and you alone? And would you just bring glory upon glory upon glory to yourself through our life, Lord? As we partake of the table, God, for those in the room that don't know you, I pray that you would just wreak havoc with their hearts. I pray that you just, just overwhelm them right now. Overwhelm them, not with shame or guilt. Overwhelm them with how much you love them. How you are willing to go to the cross for them. 
And it wasn't an accident. It wasn't because you felt like you had to or because they deserved it. It's because you loved them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just, just overwhelm them with your love. God, for the individuals in here that, that are running this race, they're, they're, they're struggling to run with endurance, maybe have been sprinting a lot, God, would you, would you give us the ability through your spirit to walk through this race, to do this where we're literally walking by the lamp that you put into our feet, God? God, would you give us the ability to run this race where you get all the glory? And forgive us for getting distracted. Forgive us for looking at other things. Forgive us for not seeing you first and foremost. And God, for the individuals that are in here that are neck deep, feel like they're drowning, the most beautiful thing all Peter had to say was, Lord, help me. And you immediately helped him. Would they cry out for your help today? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.